CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Bosch Software Innovations. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sun Joke All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sun Joke All. Hello and uh, welcome to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. And as always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter, hashtag CTR Live, and look for this show as hashtag leadership. Today's topic is making constraints your ally. And our guest for today's show is Mark Barton, who's the partner at Eat Big Fish and is also the author of A Beautiful Constraint. How are you, Mark? I'm doing great. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much. Now, we all want utopia, but reality is we always, almost always have challenges in realizing our dreams. And of course, as we go about doing our business projects. So sometimes uh, they are self-inflicted and in other areas, they are just constraints that make our journey somewhat interesting. So instead of bowing down in front of these constraints and conceding to them, is it at all possible to embrace them and make them your ally? On this show, we'd like to explore it, and if it is possible, uh, how to make that happen. So, Mark, you actually wrote a book on this subject. It's very interesting and fascinating in in terms of what you came across as part of your research. So, the first question for you is that is it the constraint, just the very fact that you have constraints? We all have constraints, and some of us, we are able to make the best use of them. The other is... Uh, other people just buckle. What is what is happening here? Is it like people's mindset that is uh, is causing it, or you would say that some constraints are simply more debilitating than others? I th- yeah, great question. So I I think largely it's a matter of mindset, and that sounds really easy to say, but it's a conclusion that we've reached over the course of the last three or four years researching this topic, which is that um, constraints have a bad rap. So most of us. Uh, when faced with a limitation of some sort, whether somebody slashes our budget or gives us half the time to do a project or cuts our team, and I'm sure many of, many of the listeners can identify with that reality of the moment, many of us respond to that um, as if we're being threatened. I mean, it's just, you know, human nature to kind of flinch from it and say, you know, these, these limitations, these constraints are going to thwart me. They're going to require me to reduce my ambition. I'm not going to be able to fulfill my potential. And yet, what's interesting about this, and I'll share some stories with you in a moment, is when you pull the camera back and you look across, whether it's art, literature, science, technology, engineering, there are many instances where the constraint and limitation not only um, didn't thwart the ambition, but actually led to better solutions. And most of us don't start from that place. Most of us start in what in the book we call the victim mindset, where we kind of shrink from, oh, you know, this has happened again. I've got less money, less resource. But in actual fact, um, there are many instances where the the opposite is true and the constraint leads to something better. So let let me give you a few um, examples to illustrate what we're talking about here from across a whole different range of industries. So... Imagine you are starting a a shoe business, an online shoe business. It's the dot-com boom not so long ago, and you're trying to raise money. And, of course, the VCs are going to say to you, you know, you can't sell shoes online because everybody knows 
that people have to try them on first, right? You have to walk around the room in them for, for a little while. There's a constraint at the heart of that story that prevented the founder of Zappos, this is a Zappos story, obviously, from borrowing money. No one would lend him money because the constraint was considered to be just too debilitating in that category. So his response to that constraint was to create what Zappos has now become legendary for, its wow service. So we will ship uh, shoes to you uh, free both ways, so you can try it on as many as you like and return them if you don't like them. The return policy will not just be 10, 15, 24 uh, a month. It'll be 365 days, and there'll be somebody manning the phones 24-7. Um, and that has created you know, what has made Zappos famous, all those signature moments of wow service, driven by in response to the constraint. So they were able to see in that situation um, the opportunity in constraint. Well, another story from the airline business. So another uh, classic story about Southwest Airlines from the 70s. They're just getting started. They have four airplanes uh, in, their, in service, but they have to sell one. They've got some issues and they have to sell one. So now they're faced with, we have four routes, which we worked really hard to get, and only three airplanes to service them. So the question that they're facing is, how do we service a four-route uh, system with just three airplanes? So there's a you know, massive constraint there of resource. We're lacking one critical thing, an airplane. That constraint forced them to examine all of their practices and figure out that there was a way to service four routes with three planes if they could get the turnaround time down to 10 minutes. And so they looked at every single thing they could possibly do, including innovating the classic innovation of Southwest, which is, you know, sit wherever you want to. Just get on the plane and find a seat and let's get going. And they were able to reduce the turnaround time to 10 minutes when the airline industry average at that time was an hour. So, again, creating a very signature differentiating moment for Southwest Airlines in its history, again, driven by that constraint. And I could go on, Sandra, but I'll let you interrupt me now. So uh, that's the kind of situation here. So those are very inspiring, for sure. Now, if you were to look at our regular real lives when the regular John Smith goes to um, the workplace or, or goes about running their businesses, whatever they are doing, they do come across constraints. And not every time you are able to create what Southwest did or what Zappos did. Those are great holy grails, if you will, to, to touch or try to touch. So if you were to get real in our regular day-to-day life, there are so many constraints which are you know, holding us back from meeting our true potential or even getting our things done so that we can pay our bills. Mm-hmm. So when we touch that real life, how are these individuals supposed to think well, I think, you know, it's interesting. You're responding uh, in the way that many people respond when we first start talking to them about this, which is, yeah, that's fine for Southwest, that's fine for Zappos, but what about me? That's the victim mentality coming through, because actually um, I could go on and on and on telling you stories from all kinds of different industries about where this has happened. And most people, and I hope, you know, this is the process maybe we can go through on this call, is most people when they stop to think about it, can find a situation that's very real, might be in their own personal life. 
It might be something that's happened in their company last year where a team really responded very positively to a constraint and was able to make something better happen as a consequence of having embraced the constraint as opposed to flinch from it and try to navigate around it. So the reason why I'm starting with these inspiring stories and asking your listeners and yourself maybe to think about an instance in your own life where this has happened is because without that sense that it is possible, not just for Zappos, not just for Southwest, but for me and my, my life and my business to work in this way, without that belief at the very beginning, you're defeated before you start. So one of the places we ask our um, clients and people that we work with to, to think about is to get in touch with a story about something that's happened uh, in, their, in their own world where they've been able to do this and to shine a spotlight on those moments and say, what happened then? Was there just a brilliant individual at the heart of that? And sometimes that is the case. So we can learn from what made that individual brilliant and can we, are there things that that individual was doing that are replicable that we can copy? And the book is largely about that. It's, it's about looking at a number of cases across a number of categories and saying, well, what were the steps being taken here? Is there a formula, a replicable method here that we can not just make this a series of brilliant one-offs, but actually start to repeat? So, you know, I'd ask you to think about what is your own, uh, in our world we call these the beautiful constraints. What is your own beautiful constraint story? What happened there? Was it something that's just a brilliant one-off, or were there things that can be repeated? And I think you'll find that there are a series of quite simple steps that when you are faced with a constraint and your temptation might be to become somewhat paralyzed by it, to stop, think about the fact that it's happened many times before out there in the world and in your own world, in your own life, in your own business, and to start taking small steps towards a solution that gets you away from this victim mindset and towards a situation where you can transform that constraint and can find the opportunities in it. And I think you'll find it's far more common uh, than we actually think. It's, again, it's just, you know, constraints have a bad PR campaign and they need to get better, and that's the intention behind this book. So uh, you gave an example of, or maybe asked us to take an example of wherever we had turned those constraints around and use that as a basis or kind of analyze it to mm -hmm. see what can you do more frequently. Now, every situation is different, and I'm not going to be, you know, talking like a victim here because I'm representing my listeners. Yep. Most of us look at each constraint having its own uh, flavor or its own uh, set of parameters which govern it. And we try to, of course, do our best. Nobody comes, wakes up and says, okay, I'm going to be uh, depressed and I'm going to you know, feel like a victim. They always want to make the, the most of the day that is coming. When they are approaching it, at that time, that moment when they accept it, do they accept it as a debilitating or, or a stumbling block or they see that as an opportunity that requires them to frame that constraint in a way that it, it has a positive spin? What's yeah. that secret sauce? Well, I think the secret sauce is to couple the constraints closely to your ambitions as a business. So many leaders in business will be able to stand up and tell their teams uh, what it is that they're trying to achieve. You know, what's our big ambition here? What are our goals? Um, and rarely incorporate into that conversation the constraints themselves. So there's a very simple tool we use with our clients called a propelling question, which asks a team to couple that constraint, 
first of all, become very aware of the constraints, what exactly is it and how does it work, and couple it specifically and deliberately to the constraints. So let me give you a, an example to illustrate that. This is an example from uh, the world of automobiles. So Audi uh, wants to become the most prestigious uh, auto brand in the world, and it, to do that, it recognizes that it needs to win on the racetrack. Specifically, it needs to win Le Mans. But what it realizes, and what the chief engineer at, at Audi realizes, is that the history of, that, uh, of racing is about building faster, bigger, more powerful engines. And he knows uh, that they aren't going to necessarily be able to compete in that way. In other words, his propelling question is, I'd like to win Le Mans without an engine that's any more powerful than anybody else's, because he recognizes that Audi's engines don't work in that way. Is there a way for us to use that constraint, the fact that we don't have engines that are any more powerful, in, and couple it to that ambition of winning the race Le Mans? And, of course, after some trial and error and, and a lot of... Um, consternation, the team comes back and says, no one has yet used turbo diesel technology on the racetrack. Turbo diesel is not necessarily faster, but it is more fuel efficient, and therefore we will come off the track less. And if you know anything about the 24-hour racetrack, you know, it's really hard to make up uh, the pit stop time by, by building an engine that's just that much more powerful. So the solution was to embrace the constraint to see this propelling question, how do we win at Le Mans when we have an engine no powerful than anybody else's, and use that propelling question to propel the team to think about solutions that no one has yet tried on the track. And Audi was able to win Le Mans three years in a row, first, second, and third on the podium, as a con consequence of embracing the constraint and coupling it to their ambition. So that's you know, just a very simple, pragmatic tool. It, it sounds quite... Um, straightforward to do, and it is, but the focusing that that allows a team to bring to a problem, a very simple definition of what is it we're trying to solve for here. We know what our ambitions are, but coupling the constraint directly to it means that the solutions that emerge from answering that question not only contain the ambition of the business, but also use the, uh, the constraints themselves as part of that solution. And that's the way that you get real-world, tangible, concrete uh, ways of improving your fortunes around constraints. Now, since this uh, particular show that we do is targeted towards senior uh, technology, business technology leaders, mm -hmm. and they are supposed to be married to this word constraint because they always are asked to do more with less or sometimes more with nothing. <laughs> and yep. they do not get that uh, Zappos or Southwest or uh, those type of, uh, I would say, investments. So they have to figure out how they keep meeting the business demands, how do they keep handling the new things that are coming their way, and at the same time not being offered the additional dollars or resources as human resources or other type of uh, constraints are imposed, and they're still supposed to deliver. So it's not that there are not people who are delivering, but there are many who struggle. Yep. So what should be the mindset? How can they frame it where there is it's, – it's in a way in some cases less about innovation because the way you have you've answered some of the questions here is that literally the answer to almost all constraint-related problem is to innovate. Yeah. Sometimes it is plain constraint that in order to innovate, you, you need money to get money. Yeah. So well, in those cases, how do you, how do you frame it? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we in, the, in our work have started to use this word inventiveness because innovation um, carries uh, 
a lot of baggage these days. Everybody's talking about innovation. It's a big buzzword. But what we're trying to do here is, is a little bit more of a sort of everyday inventiveness. So let me give you, for instance, that, um, a story that maybe your listeners can identify with that doesn't require per se any major invention, but was nevertheless uh, a major breakthrough. So I'd like to talk about Unilever. Um, Unilever, the Paul Polman, who is the CEO of Unilever at the moment, um, four years ago made a statement um, after cons- consultation with his senior leaders that Unilever would double the business by 2020 uh, whilst halving the footprint of the business, the environmental footprint. So there's the big ambition to double the size of the business, but he's coupling the constraint directly to it whilst halving our footprint. Now, you know, that would kick off a whole series of innovations. But one of the things that was most interesting about a specific solution, which I think uh, can play out in the, in, the, in the world of technology too, is what he asked his teams to do, um, Pierre-Luigi Sigismondi, the, the head of supply chain there in particular, asked his teams to do, was to go back and examine every assumption in the way that they currently thought about uh, their business, so, you know, in, the world, in your world, it might be, you know, the, the solution, the technolo- technology platforms that um, our business is built around, the way that we think about the things that are absolutely fundamental and necessary to delivering um, the technology um, infrastructure that the, our businesses need. He got his teams to go back and question every single assumption about what was in their systems. Because part of... Um, an ability to make constraints beautiful is recognizing that there are what we what uh, technologies call path dependencies. There are there are ways that we believe the system needs to work, has always worked, and will ever work, that have become over time ingrained habits and oftentimes need to be challenged. And it's very difficult for an organization to routinely challenge and question all the assumptions about how it goes about its business. So in the case of Unilever, for instance, just to make this really clear, um, one of the things they started to look for was waste. Um, And all businesses can, can go through this kind of exercise. So somebody identified the fact that in Unilever's um, uh, tomato sauce protocols, it required just five use of 5% green tomatoes. So um, somebody asked the question, well, why 5%? Why not 10%? Because if they were throwing an awful lot of green tomatoes away because the automatic picking machines will pick red ones and green ones and then they get sorted and, and the, um, the uh, protocol said we can only accept 5% tomatoes. Somebody questioned that. Why 5? Why not 10 they reformulated the source using 10% green tomatoes. No one could taste the difference. The effect on Unilever's cost structure was massive. The effect on their systems with the far- relationships with the farmers was massive because suddenly the farmers were getting a far better return. So there's no per se innovation involved in that process. But the constraint has forced the teams at Unilever to examine Uh, assumptions, biases that have been in their systems, baked into their systems for years now, that it's time to question. So sometimes the impetus that a constraint gives us is not necessarily, let's create something that's magical that's never been been seen in the world before. It forces us to examine our constraints. And so one of the things that we could ask um, of your listeners is to think about the opportunity that and, and it, you know, believe me, I understand how frustrating it is to be constantly uh, told to do more with less. That is the modern uh, mantra of business, not just in the world of technology, but more broadly than that. And it's it's difficult to to 
to deal with that on a daily basis. But ask yourself, in that moment of being asked to do more with less, is there an opportunity for us to go back and re-examine some of the things that we have just taken as givens? Do we really need them? Are there things that we can take out of our system and do without now? Sometimes um, it's a matter of doing just a little bit at exactly the right time as opposed to re-engineering an entire system. So small changes in the assumptions we make about how we need to operate in our business, inspired by, prompted by these constraints, can be just as valuable, questioning those assumptions, challenging them, coming up with better working models than necessarily having to invent something new. Now, let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back and look at the mindset of a leader who himself or herself is dealing with these constraints. And, of course, they are the one whose neck is on the line. But at the same time, they want to make sure that the troops that they are leading, they are able to convert that from being a simple negative pressure, which is going to pull them down into uh, them becoming creative with the way they look at things, as you mentioned, re-examine the assumptions and the habits and see if there is a turnaround possible. So how do they go about sharing what is going on and how are we going to change our situation by just thinking differently? How do they go about saying that in a way it doesn't look like that it is just mincing words, but it in fact has some positive re-energizing impact? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Find out how the HP as a service solution for SAP HANA can help you gain instant, impactful business results without capital investment by logging on to hp.com. Transform information into intelligence and a competitive advantage with a full spectrum of SAP HANA products and services from HP, a global SAP hosting partner. Bosch Software Innovations is proud to sponsor this program. Visit www.bosch-si.com forward slash connected manufacturing to find out how Bosch can help you improve your operational performance and become a manufacturing industry leader in a connected world. Change the way you predict, manage, and produce outcomes. Bosch Connected Manufacturing. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke All. Welcome back. So, um, Mark, as I was saying, leaders are basically made of, or their success is dependent on the troops that they lead. And those troops should be feeling good and hunky-dory about anything that comes their way. That's a mindset, and that's a, as a positive re-energizing impact that you want to be created by a leader by reframing the constraints so that it doesn't look like a negative pressure. How do you mm-hmm. go about doing that? 
Well, so we've talked about the first simple tool, which is developing these propelling questions, right? Putting our ambitions right alongside, coupling them to our constraints. And that can be a very um, healthy thing to do as a team anyway. Even take, you know, four or five people, engineers in your group, go away and sit them down and say, look, what are the propelling questions, guys, that are going to drive um, our uh, behaviors internally in the next two, three years? We all know what the constraints are. They're very real. They're coming to us on a daily basis. Let's just get clear about stating what those propelling questions are. I think the next step is then to, to go into trying to um, find the solutions to those questions, the answers to those questions, using what we call can-if thinking. And this is um, a, a concept that we got from um, the guy who runs operations at the largest bakery in Europe, Warburton's, who said that when he's facing these so-called impossible briefs, these challenges that just seem like they just don't have a ready solution to them. He needs to, it's really important how he has conversations with his team about it. So he's banned the word can't because at the beginning of any conversation. He just says, look, you know, we don't, I'm not, get, I'm not interested in having a conversation about whether it's possible to find a solution to this propelling question. We need to figure out how. So we're going to start the conversation with can if. Now, at the one hand, you know, it seems like a, a really simple um, piece of language, and it is. Um, but what it does is it injects optimism into the conversation. And, you know, to, to the point um, that you were making earlier, Sanjog, about, you know, it's, it's difficult, this, and we, we sometimes feel thwarted easily by it. To maintain optimism during the solution-finding process is really important. So beginning the conversations with, well, we can if, what is it that we would need to believe and make happen in order to solve this problem is a really um, straightforward and simple solution. So, again, let me illustrate that perhaps with, a, with an example of um, let's go to the factories of Southeast Asia where Nike's um, sneakers are being manufactured. And Nike is struggling with compliance uh, issues in those factories, labor standards, and, and, and in particular, the toxicity of some of the uh, chemicals that they use to make, um, make their shoes. So the propelling question there is, how do we, main, how do we reduce toxicity in the factories uh, without having, having to put thousands of uh, people in the factories to maintain standards on an, on a, on an ongoing basis 24-7? Because we just don't have enough people to make that happen. The can-if solution that Nike came up with is a very obvious one in, in retrospect looking at it, but was to remove the need for policing of toxic chemicals in the first place by getting the chemical toxicity out of their products. So they invented a new glue, a non-toxic glue. So the can-if solution was we can if we remove toxins from the process altogether. So sitting down with your teams... Developing the propelling questions together, getting clear on what our ambitions are, what, on what the constraints are that are standing in their way, coupling them together, and then having can-if conversations. And this is something that can happen quite formally over the period of months with a number of you know, uh, conversations organized around that, or it could be informally in the lunch room at, you know, on Friday lunchtimes. Let's have some can-if conversations around how we can address the propelling questions of our business. And just those two tools, propelling questions, can if thinking brings clarity and energy to the process and you know just keep doing it and solutions may pop up as a consequence of paying attention to what those constraints are and trying to find the answers 
Talk about being resourceful. So we are talking here all along about uh, thinking differently and trying to change and, and fundamentally innovate something. Another mm-hmm. is to say, okay, so maybe there is a potential for innovation or perhaps not, but at least what we could do is to have the individuals who form a team to each of them leveraging their own uh, ways to find resources to build that collective pool so that it fundamentally offsets the very constraint that we are dealing with, whether it is time, whether it is space, whether it is money, or it is intellect. Yes. Yes. So how do you go about doing that? Well, you know, it's just an observation about um, what we saw time and again uh, in all of the cases that we looked at was a refusal to accept that the resources that we had to hand uh, that we were given as part of our, you know, the higher-ups gave us this budget, this group, this technology to work with, a refusal to accept that those were the only resources available to us. So, yes, they are, you know, we're looking at that as real. But in that team, thinking about what other kinds of resources can we go and access? They don't necessarily belong to us today, but we can easily access them by thinking about um, who, what, where's the adjacent abundance, for example? So, you know, you might have a member of your team who goes, well, I don't know the answer to this question, but my colleague who I worked with last year, who's in Team X over there, does have insight about this particular kind of software. Let's see if I can go and buy him a beer and borrow some of his insight, or maybe we asked him to be seconded onto our team. So there's a, a new definition of resourcefulness that's required in the modern world where we are going to be routinely faced with these constraints, to not accept the resources that we're given, but to embrace that part of our responsibility, if we're working in constraint-driven times, is to figure out where the abundance, res- abundant resources are that we need and figure out how to go and get them. So uh, let me illustrate that with a story from the fashion world, but in the end turns out to be a technology solution. So renttherunway.com is a startup that's about three or four years old now. Their big insight was that many young women don't have the money to spend $1,000 on a fancy gown to go to a ball that they'll wear once a year. And actually what those women would much prefer to do is to rent that gown over the weekend. Very good insight, driven a lot of business for them. But all the designers they approached and said, would you like to you know, share your, your stock of fine dresses with us on our website and we will rent them? I said, why would I do that? I'm cannibalizing my own sales. So at that point, we could have said, okay, well, this is a bad business model. Um, the fashion community doesn't want to go there with us. But what the Rent the Runway people did was to say, what is it that they do want that we can give them access to that we're currently not thinking about? And the solution turned out to be what those independent fashion designers need is insight. They're struggling away. They've got maybe a couple of stores, one store in, some, in Manhattan. They have no insight about who's buying their dresses, what, fashion, what colors are in fashion this year, what styles are in fashion this year, who's buying them, when they're buying them. So if we can aggregate all the data and provide great insight to all of these independent fashion designers about what's working in the marketplace today, we can make them smarter and we can help them to grow their businesses. So it required them to rent the runway to say, how do we create an abundance of insight that these people need 
and go frame what it is that we're offering to them, not as, hey, we'd like to borrow all the stock you've got and rent it out at the weekend, but hey, we'd like to bring you an abundance of insight into how this marketplace works that you can't access any other way. And so a reframing of what it was that they had so that the audience they were trying to reach would really see the value in it allowed them to unlock that category and allow them to find, uh, provide abundance of information for, for, their, uh, for these fashion designers that would get around that constraint that they were facing. So, you know, all of us will have a situation where we're sitting there going, what is it that we actually have? We don't have, there's a lot of stuff we don't have and we can spend some time moaning about the constraints about how little we have, but we actually have quite a lot here. Are there ways to reframe what it is that we do have and go and make offers out there to the world? It might be inside our own business. It might be to vendors. It might be to partners. It may be to customers. And say, we need X. We don't have X. You have X. What we have is Y. Is there a way that we can make you see the value in Y so that you want, are ready to trade and ready to deal with it? So it's a creative exploration around what it is that we do have and how to reframe that back to the world so that they can see huge value in it. And it creates a mutually beneficial ecosystem of trading, what it is that we do have for what it is that we need. And it's a much more entrepreneurial instinct. We see this happening all the time, for example, in Silicon Valley. But bringing that attitude, that approach to the trading of value in really creative ways in order to allow us to get what it is that we need, that we don't currently have, that we think is necessary outside of entrepreneurial Silicon Valley type settings in large companies, in school systems, in healthcare system. What is it that we have that other people need that they would be prepared to, to trade for us? And that's the way that we can create abundance of resource in the face of what might appear to be limited resource. That makes let's sense. Take a quick, oh, definitely. And, yeah. and please, uh, listeners, uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back and let's talk about the morale. So, of course, Dealing with constraints, even though you're trying to turn it on its head and make it a creative endeavor, but it is definitely draining. How do you keep the morals high and how do you keep them at the top of their spirit as they go about going through this grueling journey? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. Bosch Software Innovations is proud to sponsor this program. Visit www.bosch-si.com forward slash connected manufacturing to find out how Bosch can help you improve your operational performance and become a manufacturing industry leader in a connected world. Change the way you predict, manage, and produce outcomes. Bosch Connected Manufacturing. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Find out how the HP as a service solution for SAP HANA can help you gain instant, impactful business results without capital investment by logging on to HP.com. Transform information into intelligence and a competitive advantage with a full spectrum of SAP HANA products and services from HP, a global SAP hosting partner. 
are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So, Mark, give us a few pointers on how to keep the morale high off of our team because dealing with constraints is going to be draining and what we could be doing throughout the journey as leaders to make the most out of the situations and keeping helping our teams keep their head held high. Yeah, great. So let's just re- recap where we've got to so far. So we've talked about mindset, method, and we're about to talk about motivation. Those are the three critical aspects of dealing productively with constraints. Mindset, I believe it is possible to actually do more with less. I believe it is possible to take this constraint, this limitation, and make it into something that's even better than we thought it was possible to do. And that involves understanding these stories from across all kinds of categories and your own lives to get that mindset and positivity at the beginning. We've talked about the method. We've talked about creating propelling questions, using canist thinking, and creating abundance as three very specific, concrete, tangible strategies to pursue in the face of a do-more-with-less kind of reality. But the third piece, which is what you're getting at now, is motivation. This is difficult work. Let's not uh, gloss over the fact that despite all these great stories I can tell you, it's difficult. It's challenging. The constraints don't yield their secrets to you in the first go-round, and we need to persist. We need to keep going back again and again looking for uh, solutions. And that requires a very motivated and very engaged workforce. I think this is one of those things that I feel like is personally underrepresented in the business world. You know, mo- most of us spend our time being very professional, staring coldly and rationally at the facts and trying to analyze and come to conclusions driven by the data. And that's great. And of course, we need to operate in that way. But in the face of constraints, we need to recognize that we're, we're flesh and bones and we are human beings and we uh, need to care about what it is that we're trying to solve. So the, rep- the responsibility of leadership in these constraint-driven times is to make sure that the people who work for us know why it's important that we have to solve this problem. So some of that will come from connecting our work. The reason we need to solve for this constraint is it's an important driver of the company purpose, the company mission. So connecting this project to the larger purpose of the organization, allowing people to see why it is that their work is important, why a solution is necessary as part of the larger whole is absolutely critical. So that's kind of at a macro level. But then even within the team members, understanding what it is that makes some of these people on our team tick. So getting to know them as people. Um, We've had uh, in this body of work, you know, we've had CEOs say to us, Mark, you know what it comes down to? It comes down to fear and greed. So I need to scare the shit out of people. They're going to lose their jobs if they don't work. That works for some of them. For others, I need to put in place incentive programs. If we do this, I'm going to bonus you up the yin-yang because I know that money turns you on and motivates you. For some people, it might just be personal pride. You know, you, I know that you're a winner and you want to figure this thing out, and we will make you a star and a hero inside our business 
if you do this. You know, it's interesting. Um, IKEA is a very, very good. They have a culture of innovation, which maybe we'll talk about um, more before the interview ends. But one of the things they're really good at is using their in-house magazine to make um, celebrities, if you like, internal celebrities, out of people who've been able to do more with less, out of people who've been able to solve seemingly impossible briefs in this way, and raise them up, put them on a platform. It says to the organization, this is what we value. These are the kinds of people that we want working here. Um, and, and that motivates certain sorts of people. So I think you know, the, the responsibility of a leader working with a team, big or small, on these difficult problems is to understand what makes each of those people on his, his or her team tick emotionally as a human being and figure out how to connect what their motivations are to the project in such a way that they can ask, they can go back and ask for the team to go again. You know, so much of what works in this kind of situation is persistence. It's, you know, the, the psychologist that we talk to will talk about, you know, you batter your head against the brick wall for a while. If it doesn't yield, you've got to step away, take a break, go walk around the block metaphorically, might take a week, might take a month, and come back to that with a new set of stimulus and a new set of prompts and a new uh, set of ideas about how to tackle it. But in order to get people to come willingly to that, to come optimistically, to come um, enthusiastically to trying to solve that problem again in a different way is going to require us to understand who they are as human beings and be prepared to talk to them about, is it about money? Is it about bonus? Is it about connecting it to the whole? Is it about promotion? Is it about um, a desire to make your mark in the world? What is it that makes you tick as a human being? How can we all talk about that openly and, and make sure that we are giving you the opportunity um, to, if you solve this problem, be rewarded by whatever it is that, that makes it work for you. Now, what you just mentioned, would you agree that a lot of leaders and the human resource organization, they try to at all times work understanding what their individual wants, how do they want to what do they do from every day, yet you have a lot of negative environments that persist in organizations where, of course, every organization has constraints. Some have got more of that crumbling down attitude versus the others. So what is the difference? Because both parties must be trying to do the same. Maybe the devil is in the details and the way it's executed. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, <laughs> it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because I know from my own experience that um, in a world where we're all being asked to do more with less constantly, and that's just a refrain from the top, um, it, 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 it's, it's very easy to become um, despondent and feel a little bit uh, dejected by that. And I think the companies that, and the cultures that have a very positive relationship with constraint, who've been able to um, tell themselves stories that they are the kind of people, they are the kind of organization that responds positively to constraint, that finds better solutions uh, in constraints as opposed to, you know, thwarted, uh, feeling thwarted. Those organizations are the ones that are, uh, are prospering. So I think, you know, it's incumbent upon all of us to change the dialogue. You know, there's a, one of the um, psychologists that we're quoted in our book talks about this idea that we are the stories we tell ourselves. And too many modern businesses are telling themselves a story that these are sucky times, 
where the markets aren't growing that fast, markets are incredibly competitive, my budgets are being cut. There's an air of negativity around that, which is completely understandable. I don't wish to be sort of Pollyanna-ish about dismissing that as not the real situation. But it requires of us, and it requires of leaders, and it requires of us as HR organizations to step into that conversation, acknowledge what's happening, acknowledge the truth of it, and try to re-engineer the mindset, the, the methodologies of the organization towards a more positive relationship with what's happening in, around constraints, around budget cuts, around um, you know, the competitive situation. Try to re-engineer around that to make it a much more positive relationship so that we can move forward, which is why talking about what is the mindset, how do we need to think about this, what are some simple steps. I'm not going to leave you on your own to go figure it out. I'm going to give you some methodologies here, some very simple strategies, propelling questions, can it, training people to think and use those tools and use the language that's embedded in these tools to change the way we think so that we can have a positive relationship to these constraints and the belief that it is doable rather than just sink into this negative place. But I think it's, it requires new kinds of behaviors of leaders to navigate their teams towards constraints, not away from them. You know, to, we, we, that's a natural tendency and inclination that what we're seeing with the best organizations at the moment, the best leaders, is that they, they'll move their groups towards them and say, let's look at this. Let's find the opportunity in this. And there's a, there's a positivity that comes from that. Some simple, quick wins uh, really helpful, obviously, always, but to build momentum around our ability to turn these constraints into opportunities is just a crucial capability for the 21st century organization. When you talk about uh, you know handling an individual's needs, wants, and desires and motivations, and that would allow each of those people to do the right thing, which will collectively help the organization get to where it wants to with respect to dealing with constraints. Mm-hmm. There is a concept of swarm, which is which happens in the wilds, where you know a, a bunch of birds or a bunch of animals they would actually be able to thwart the the threats from a predator by being together mm-hmm. and acting in unison. Yeah. If that was swarm mentality was to be uh, created within an organization, within a team, where that team actually thinks exactly like at the same time, totally synced, and, and that mindset is prevailing with respect to how to handle constraints, how to make that happen as, as, as compared to try to go to each individual and trying to find their needs, motivations, and desires? Because that will provide you much better support knowing that you've got 300 of your colleagues who are exactly fighting with it, but I am one of them and we'll, we'll beat this to the punch. Yeah. So there's issues of macro motivation. How do you get a swarm mentality in a large organization? And there's issues of micro motivation, which is how do I, you know, uh, create the right environment that um, this particular individual is going to respond in the right way to. And I think they're both important. What you're talking about with the swarm mentality is, is the macro motivation. And I'll go back to that Unilever story again, because... Um, you know, when Paul Pullman and his senior leadership stood up and made this statement that they were going to double the size of the business while halving their uh, footprint, um, nobody knew at that time how they were actually going to do that. That was why it was such a courageous statement to make publicly to Wall Street and others, 
that they were going to do this without knowing exactly what the solutions were. And it creates that sort of highly uh, intense uh, expectation in the organization. Well, who's going to do it? How are we going to do it? And it focused the organization very clearly on that singular um, uh, propelling question. Um, and, you know, what they, what they spoke about internally at Unilever was, look, um, you know, the environmental impact and issues of our business are significant. If we don't get out ahead of them and start to address things like water usage, to address things like sustainably harvested palm oil, for example, there will be no, no markets healthy enough to buy our products. So this is a, an existential question that we're asking, and it's a very powerful one. And everybody in that organization responded to that as parents, as citizens of the planet, as I'm so proud that our organization is finally stepping up to this challenge and embracing it. And the um, engagement scores within Unilever have, have improved significantly. So not only do they have now solutions emerging for how they're going to have their impact while growing their business, but they have a, um, an organization, a set of employees who are really motivated to continue on this difficult journey together because they've identified with the cause. They have that singular purpose, as you described, in the swarm mentality. They're all, they all know what it is their organization is trying to do and why they're trying to do it, and they're all aligned with it, and they're heading in the right direction. That's probably an overstatement. If anybody from Unilever is listening, I, you know, I suspect that you can't always take 100% of people uh, with you on any given journey like this, but the vast majority of people there are energized and motivated by it, and it's working for them. And having said that, so that's the macro level that they have. Having said that, I know that um, Pierre Luigi Sigismondi, who's the head of supply chain there, who I mentioned earlier, has hired a member of the uh, military to come into his organization and talk to them about how to find their own personal connection, above and beyond the larger story here of Unilever, to try to find their personal motivation and connection to that story. And it's fascinating to me that um, he's brought in someone from the military, because again, we tend to think of the military as, you know, cold-blooded professionals doing a job according to the rules, uh, very disciplined, all of which is true. And yet, what they also recognize, and this came from um, there's a fabulous book I really strongly recommend uh, by Admiral William McRaven, who wrote about special operations. It's, the book's called Spec Ops, which we looked at because it's small teams trying to do massive things. So it's very much aligned with our uh, constraint-driven um, uh, approach here. But William McRaven talks about the impo importance of emotional engagement, even amongst professional soldiers, the difference maker in the end, is about a personal conviction that the mission is good, the mission is right, and they identify with it. So, you know, I do think that um, in the modern business world, in a situation where we are constantly being asked to do more with less, that we need to get much smarter, much more capable about talking to people about how we, are, how we get them to raise their game and commit to doing this difficult work. And it goes above and beyond just simply asking them to do a job. It goes to the point of how do you motivate yourself to do this work again and again and again in difficult situations. And that's about the identity of the organization and its mission and the understanding how the individuals work on, a, on an individual-by-individual individual basis. 
Now, when a child is born and you take them through their journey of adolescence to a teenager to someone who joins the workforce to the middle management, all along we create utopia. We create a place where everything is cool. They are sheltered from any other issue, and we take pride in being great parents or being great, uh, you know, newbie, uh, the, the mentors, if you will, mentors to the, the newbies into the workforce. Till that time, everything is hunky-dory, and constraint is not a word that they have to deal with. And suddenly, we throw them into the pool without floaters. <laughs> Do yep. you think there is something to do with that as, as a shock that they get and they are not prepared. Do you think this is more of a nature thing or the way we are nurturing our whole community or, or our whole whole workforce from the very beginning, from the very childhood and the way the society works? What that has great, got something to do yeah. with it. That is a great question. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up and allowed me to go there because this, you know, this is about parenting. I'm a parent and... Uh, I've had this conversation with my wife about parenting, and I've had a conversation with a fascinating uh, woman called Madeleine Levine about this issue. So Madeleine wrote a book called The Price of Privilege, um, and it's particularly about you know, raising affluent children. So you know, recognizing that's clearly not everybody in the States. But one of the things she talks about in the modern world for you know, smart uh, kids coming from affluent backgrounds is that there just isn't enough challenge in their lives. They're given every opportunity. They're given uh, all the toys and gadgets they need. They're given access to fabulous teaching opportunity. And by the time they become uh, get into adulthood, they've really not uh, been able to have a productive relationship with constraints. And her prescription for, um, for children is more struggle. Um, you know, and this, it's also, this is also connected to uh, the work um, uh, around the growth mindset, which is about a belief that um, we aren't fixed, that our, under, our ability to deal with the world is not fixed and given, that we are constantly able to grow our abilities. Uh, this is Carol Dweck's work from Stanford. We are co- constantly able to grow uh, as, as individuals if we accept that there's always something new to learn and that there's always a new uh, solution out there to a problem if we have the right orientation towards it. So I think, you know, there's a very, there's an awful lot that we could say about um, how we raise our children and how we prepare them to come into a world which is going to be arguably uh, more constraint uh, driven. Uh, and that is to set them these kinds of difficult problems, to have them embrace a, uh, a more complex relationship to the world, which is full of challenge, which is full of difficulty, which is full of hardship, and develop a productive relationship to those constraints as they grow, as they become human beings, so that when they go out into the world, they're much more capable of dealing with the kind of realities that we all deal with in the modern world, which is you know, this do more with less idea. Okay, I've got a couple of minutes left, so two questions. Uh, need your quick answers, but uh, you may want to take your time to explain them properly. Um, in terms of the new variety of constraints, since that you've done research on this, what is that you envision in terms of the flavors of constraints which we are about to see, which may, we may or may not be prepared for? Yeah, so um, in the book, we identified four different kinds of constraints, constraints of foundation, constraints of resource, constraints of time, constraints of method. 
Um, I think the one I might highlight on this call would be the constraint of time. Um, who amongst us doesn't feel like there's just too much to get done on any given day? And as much as we live in a world of phenomenal amount of abundance of options of ways to connect and get our work done, that even adds more pressure to us. So I think one of the things that I'm fascinated by, and this came out of understanding um, how drip irrigation works. So drip irrigation, very simply put, is just enough water at just the right time leads to uh, better growth for fruits and vegetables than if, we, if we'd flooded the environment. I think one of the things that we all need to think about in the modern world, given how busy everybody is, is how to give them just enough of what they need at just the right time. And I was reading a great article about um, how to prepare kids from underprivileged backgrounds who've, made, who've got the grades to go to college and typically drop out over the summer. And there's a program that two Harvard um, experts have been using where they're just using text messaging, very simple texts throughout the summer period, just the right content at just the right time that prevents those students from dropping out and going through what they call the summer melt. So I'm interested in that as an idea to apply in organizations too, in your teams that are dealing with this with these constrained environments, how can we give them just enough of what they need at just the right time? So we're not adding to that sense of being overwhelmed uh, with complex you know, methodologies and so on. It's just, just enough at the right time. That's what I'm really interested in because I think the critical constraint that we're all dealing with and aren't really capable of responding healthily to at the moment is this constraint of time. Now, one last question for you is what is it that you would like to say in two words or three words that you would like to share uh, for people who are dealing with constraints, how to do it effectively? Well, I think the, the three-word headline would be constraints are opportunities. It's a very simple thing to say, but I think what I hope to have accomplished on this call is just to say to people that when you're confronted with a constraint, it's human nature to go to that place of this is going to be very difficult and maybe think about how that's going to prevent you from realizing your potential. But change your relationship to constraints and try to find in them the opportunities and the opportunities for you and your business to live up to your full potential. Constraints equals opportunity. On behalf of our show and our listeners, thank you so much, uh, Mark, for your taking the time to share with us about how organizations and individuals can make the most of constraints and make them our ally. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much again. And listeners, hope you enjoyed it. Got some nuggets out of it. Please like us on Facebook, search for CIO Talk Radio, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, the monthly newsletter we send out with uh, all the information that we collect and all the conversations we have throughout the month. Thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Radio. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Please join Sun Joke All next Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Eastern Time for another hour of CIO Talk Radio on the Voice America Business Channel. CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Bosch Software Innovation.